0: Staying Alive in Paragliding A podcast series with your host, Steph Juncker From Cape Town, South Africa The owner of Parapax Tandem Paragliding And a competition pilot of 23 years Real podcasts for real pilots To learn from, to laugh at, and to enjoy the funny and crazy stories that go with it. Jockey Sanderson so doesn't need any introduction in the world of paragliding. He's a legend. He he got SIV going, if we can. Or maybe he, as one could say, maybe he even invented SIV. Maybe he got the whole concept of SIV kind of going. Welcome to the podcast, Jockey. Awesome having you here. How are you today?
1: Lovely, stuff. How are you, mate? How is all the pilots? That's the other one. Yay!
0: <laughs> you are in. I've got to say it right. Keswick. Keswick in the UK. We spell it K-E-S-W-I-C-H, and everybody will get it wrong. Please pronounce it for me. Tell me what's around you.
1: Oh, what is around me is beautiful landscape. So Keswick is in the north of England, just before you get to Scotland. So it's the it's the mountains of England. So Wales has its mountains, Snowdonia and stuff. And the Breckens and our mountains, big ones, uh, are in Cumbria, Ke- and Keswick is one of the towns within there. And it's like a miniature front, miniature Chamonix. So outside I'm looking at 3,000 foot peak, only 1,000 meters, um, but rolling green and lots of lovely lakes, and uh, beautiful, beautiful scenery, which is why I came in, to live here, because I fell in love with it when I was a kid, and all, I was brought up in London, and I just wanted to escape to the most beautiful place and Keswick was that place and uh, which is why I called the company Escape as well (laughs) okay my job is escaping wherever it is just escape just get out go just escape from normality just escape whatever it is in your head physically in the sky just go for it
0: Amen to that. Eh? Wow, that's that's so nice to hear. You know? I took the liberty a few minutes ago. Uh, to um, I, I like to look up people that I don't know, and we have never had uh, our paths crossed. But um, I do have to quickly tell you the story of of where you fit into my life. Okay. I once, I can't remember where it was an instructor or somebody had a Jocelyn Sanderson SIV video it must have been in about 18, uh, 98 or 99. I went down to early denise <clears throat> I felt part of being there, I felt part of you, I remembered the video that I had once watched and I tried my first full stall. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Needless to say, 1400 meters above the water in early denise my arms went down and on my eagle Sabre I forgot that I should lock my arms down there or hold on to the harness or anything. <laughs> so anyway, I brought the hand down, the glider fell back behind me, and of course my arms shot up. I narrowly <laughs> missed the glider as it was like pendulum forward. <laughs> I shat myself. I fell twice, both ways in uncontrolled, and I finally came out 600 meters above the water, shaking like a leaf. I went to land at that paradise place, I packed up my glider, and I left it for the rest of the day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, that's about it. Still do that for you. <laughs> uh.
0: <laughs> so that's how I know you from a video that I once watched and I tried it and wow. Yeah, yeah. That
1: is it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, you, you can do them now. You can do them comfortably,
0: yeah? Yeah, but the Edel Saber was not a very nice glider. Oh. And you, well, it was a very nice glider, but it was not one thing you want to try straight with the bat. It's uh. a very full story. And we're going back to your area. Uh, Keswick is beautiful. I I took the liberty of of having a look. Of course, I want to uh, look at you, who you are and all of that. You live a little bit on the northern side of uh, the Lake District, which is the Lake District National Park, which is literally a circle of mountains which are relatively close to the coast. So I'm sure you've got all sorts of systems going on. You're right near the Isle of Man. Please tell me more.
1: Okay. well, the only best way of doing it is to show you. And behind me there, that's Skiddor, and that's the mountain range, and that's where we fly. You can see there's a glider in the field. We've just been checking that glider, keeping a social distance, obviously. But, um, yeah. So Josh and I, because we're sort of living together and we work together, so it's easy for us. We can just gently go from our little pod at home to come here to work, so it's quite easy. So, yeah, Keswick is beautiful, and it's right on the lake. And so, you know, we're wonderfully lucky. We can go home. We, we normally will finish here. Like last, yesterday, I cycled around the lake. Fantastically beautiful. And Borodair, which is a valley just, just south of us, is often voted the most beautiful square mile of England. It's got a wonderful babbling river through lush, lush green forests with mountains either side. So, yeah, it's a very pretty place to live.
0: Wonderful. I've... I've unfortunately never never been up there. I've been in Edinburgh, Glasgow and around Scotland and around the north of England and around London. Of Two people who I have podcasted in the last days, one being Russell Ogden and the other one being Charles Norwood, and both of them told me the top of the top places in the world for them to fly is the UK. And they said when it's on and when it's nice in the UK, it's gorgeous to fly there. Tell us more, please.
1: Well, I'd agree. <laughs> but... Uh... I think it's because it's so rarely on but when it is on it's so the thermals are, are a bit more decisive than most places you can carve into turns it's there's a lot less holes in the air um it just feels a bit thicker if you understand that because of the temperature really uh, and not only that it's you, you're you're flying over familiar ground so when you when you fly abroad you see a town or an area, you think, oh, that's pretty, but it's not, you haven't been there, you've never seen it, you've never had an experience there. So we often fly over around towns and you can think I've got memories there. And that's another thing that makes it pretty. When the conditions are good, they're very good here. So in Scotland, for example, you can get up to 5,000 feet, more, you can go, you can see both sides of the country, both coastlines, as you climb up high. And that's what's magical. For the North-South Cup, we do a charity comp, which is all the top pilots from the North and from the South. And we battle it out in the sky and raise money for charity. And it's very spontaneous. We only go to where it's flyable. We move nomadically. And we set one of the best tasks. That's why probably Charles and uh, Russ said this. But we we went to Scotland, uh, Tinto, and we set a task down to Skipton in Yorkshire, uh, James Herriot country. And that was 120, 150 and something Can't remember what It was race to goal. And it was the longest race to goal task of its kind. And we basically, I took the bus from here, from the flight park, loaded all the pilots in. We went to this remote mountain in the middle of Scotland. We knew it was going to be on RASP. All the, all the technical guys knew it was going to be on. And we basically dropped the pilots off. The bus went and they were like, well, who's going to? We said, no one, you've got to fly home. And so they had to fly 100 Ks back past here off to Yorkshire uh, amid stunning scenery. So, yeah, it is a brilliant place to fly. And last North South, we came here and we flew one day from here out into Yorkshire. And the next one, we flew the three peaks. We've got three major peaks, Skiddaw, Scarpow Pike, which are highest, and um, Helvellyn. And it's very famous. You normally run around the three peaks, things like that. We flew around the Three Peaks in less than sort of a couple of hours. A magical scenery. That's probably an, another memory that they have. But, you know, flying in the south of England, it's this wonderful patchwork of greens and browns. And it's just, it is a lovely, magical place to fly.
0: And it's also carrying a lot of historical value. You've got yes. loads and loads of stories of museums. Last year on my way to Iceland, I... I... I hadn't been for seven or eight years to london took a flight to london stayed with some friends and indulged in the free museums in london for a good week uh, so many reasons to visit the uk and it, uh, a lot of people will be like oh they just think of the queen and buckingham palace when they think of the uk but it's they're, they're completely wrong you know <laughs>
1: so much more like you can fly and you, you know you look down and see these beautiful castles and you know, look at this leeds castle or and it's magical from the air, we're all pilots, we all know how magical it is to get perspective from the air. But you see these wonderful estates with great gardens that you'd never see from the road, because they're always carefully hidden.
0: Yeah, I've only had the chance to fly in Scotland, um, just uh, south of Edinburgh, and in the South Downs. Both places were wonderful to fly, the scenery was refreshing, and different, and lovely, and landing everywhere. Oh, really great. Yeah, really cool. If you don't mind, I would like to just shift the the chat a little bit towards what you do in your life. I mean, Escape is massive. You do a whole lot of things. You do four courses, three different kinds of SIVs, under your shop, a whole lot of offerings. And then you have pod harness, trial fittings, and here trade-ins and specials. It it just goes on and on. It's like a new concept. I think it's very cool. Uh, Congratulations tangents are in there your film the escape is in there then i land on the page team and i go and have a little look who are your team and just a few minutes ago we'll before the podcast started you introduced me to your son josh of course you are chief flying instructor no less josh is team pilot uh, 21 years old he's the age that you were when you started flying do you want to tell me a little bit more about your team and about this uh,
1: it, it's sort of uh, it's a whole team of Friends, really um, family and friends and it's it's an honor to fly with them though the pilots and the guides are so skillful like Debu you know you, you know Debu from beer and, yeah. and, uh, and Stefan he's in the German team you know uh, these are all but more than their skill they have the energy the enthusiasm and the passion not just for the sport but sharing the sport which I think is key you can't It's all very well being good at the sport but to guide you have to be humble and you have to be, want to share and understand what, have empathy with the people you're guiding. Uh, and I think that's where a lot can fall. Um, and you always have to remember that people people want, they want to be guided, they want to be given uh, respect and understanding and empathy. So, you know, the guys that I work with have all got that talent. Um, they're all really passionate. And they all do whatever they can for the, the pilot. It's not about them. It's about the people they're guiding. And that, that's the most important
0: thing for us, for, for Escape. Uh, you know, I see James. I see Stefan. I see Roger. Full. who looks like a hell of a character. And he, Phil is there smiling with a paraglider. And he is your driver. Um, <laughs> everybody, your team, and every picture on your website, and everything about Escape and your job just seem to radiate. Then I land on the page where, oh, I see one of your team members, Catherine. And then I'm like, wow, that's quite something nice to look at. That doesn't hurt my eyes to look at Catherine. <laughs> and, <laughs> and she's obviously quite nice. She's in accounts, admin support. And then as I scroll down, two things I realized, uh, Jockey. The one thing I realized is, oh yes, I have Tracy in my life, I have a partner. And at the bottom right picture, then I realized she's with you, Jockey. <laughs>
1: <laughs> she's in the office we were just filming we were just doing, we're doing these um, little pod videos to go with all training phases of the british training and so we're just out in the field doing introductions and little pieces to camera which is why i'm in my british team jacket just to give a little air of authority and independence because we have to sort of we're doing these podcasts for the association and so we want all schools and clubs to, to refer to it. So we can't be branded uh, apart from the BHK branding, obviously. So she was just doing that. So she's a camera lady as well as accountants, as well as everything else. We can all do most jobs.
0: Absolutely. And I think you've said something there. I, I think uh, in this day and age, we have to be chameleons. We have to be able to move from one role to another. I mean, which tandem pilot is only a tandem pilot? Not not one worth more than just a tandem. I don't want to get into a, a, a problem here, but you understand what I mean. <laughs> I know Debu for many, many years. Uh, Debu and, and, and many guys who are from India are just amazing people. Debu and Flo from Austria, from the paragliding scene there. Um, I've worked many tandem years in Austria. Uh, What's what a member of your team? Do you want to say something about Debu?
1: Debu, yeah, he's amazing. Brilliant. He's the Indian XE champion at the moment. Uh, again, incredibly humble and, and kind and very peaceful. He's a, he's a very happy person in his skin. And it radiates through everyone. So you know, you can be on a hill flying with them and you're calm. And that's part of it. Because when you're flying, you can often be in your own little bubble, a bit stressed. But if you're with people like Debu who are relaxed, by looking and following them, it makes you calmer. Therefore, a little bit of their magic rubs off on you. And Debu is is one of those people, both in the air on the ground. A lovely person, which is why it's an honor to work with all our guides, Geordie Stefan, up then everyone. It's just such a nice experience because we don't consider it work. We're honoured to be able to do what we do. We generally just enjoy doing what we do. And yeah, you, you get paid for it, but you deliver as 100 percent to every trip you do. And if you can't, then you've got to ask yourself, why not?
0: And, uh, Jocky, at the end of the day, a paraglider service costs what it costs. A glider reserve repack costs what it costs. When we started the podcast, I saw Josh in the background tuning a glider, servicing a glider. Unless you're really the exception, you can go and charge a whole different price and give a rubbish service. Today, you've got passionate and you've got extremely passionate people in sport. Yeah, definitely.
1: Uh, and we, we, we are, uh, you know, our, our courses uh, and tours are often underpriced <laughs> people say because we don't want to attract an elitist kind of pilot we want to share everything and so if you charge too much because you you, you, you because of your name then it can often encourage the wrong sort of pilot or the wrong mentality uh, we say everyone is equal all pilots are equal and uh, no matter how good you are we're all the same so if you're on a hill and if you know the area you want to share it with that pilot that doesn't because you'll keep them safe and you'll give them a good time. And that's what's important. That's why we like to sort of share it. I like like the approach. I like the informality and I like the protection and the honesty that paragliding gives all pilots. You can't bullshit in paragliding and it's a small world. So we might as well all look after each other.
0: You've said it, A, it's a small world, Uh, B, it's a very humble sport. A lot of people, I had uh, Stelios uh, in Greece from Mount Olympus uh, on the line yesterday. I had a climber guy come along and he said there's three kinds of people. In, In climbing, and it's very similar in paragliding too. The first is the one who is just happy on a little glide flight, a little fly. The second one is a show off. You know, he's doing it for Facebook and the selfie syndrome. And the third one is the completely mad one. So, all of us are in one of those categories. <laughs> 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 I've been paragliding for 32 years. Uh, you started when you were 21. You said you, you, without me asking, said I'm 53 today. So, that's great. You've seen a lot of things. You've laughed a lot. We got onto the name of Robbie Whittle, who is being very elusive at the moment. I'm trying to track him down. Yeah. Tell us about Robbie Whittle. Tell us your story with him. You have a great story to tell. Rob,
1: Robbie's, um, I mean, we, Robbie and I used to fly together a lot. We were basically uh, slept drunk and everything together. Um, and many years ago, I mean, now he, he's uh, changed his name, It's you know, obviously started up Ozone and is more focused on the kite design and things like that. Uh, and he does a brilliant job. He's just so incredible at what he does. Designing, he's got an affinity with wings and he's got a talent and he's got this model of approaching situations, problems that is unique, which is why he'll always succeed at whatever he does. Um, and especially with high risk mentality, he has respect for it, but he knows exactly when to push it. And which is why he has gone from hang gliding world champion, paragliding world champion. And then, you know, he then says, I'm going to pull back from that, does his design and work. Then he gets into motorcycle racing and he set his target on the, uh, the Man TT, which is an extreme race. It is not just on a circuit, which has got protection, you know, deceleration zones. This, this is a, a road with dry stone walls, solid walls, and you're traveling past that at 150 miles an hour. And the average speed of this 24 mile, I can't remember what it is, is 140. That's the average. So you can imagine the speeds you get up to on normal roads. And he wanted to do that. And he, they said, well, you can't do it unless you're a member of a national team or something like that. You've got to be that good. So he went off and got into the New Zealand national team, which is where he, he lives. Yeah, got into the TT, did it a couple of times. He had an accident once, which wasn't his fault, really. He, he was set off after someone who went slowly and they had a, a little malfunction so that when he went over the rise, there he was. So, yeah, but it didn't stop him. He's an incredible guy. And if you ever get him on, it would be really interesting.
0: <laughs> we we'll definitely get him on because him and I have also enjoyed a few moments with the uh, let's say, a, a drink and a smaller uh, uh, cigarette. And we've we've laughed a lot at Vertigo. And a lot of the people I'm podcasting I've met is way back when. And it's weird how all, it's as if a, a vortex is coming down and all pointing towards Vertigo for me. It's, it's bizarre. You know? Super, super. Tell us about that mad harness that you and Robbie
1: designed. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we were both sponsored by Firebird. And the firebirds were, were leading because Robbie was was uh, I think it was world champion in a Firebird Ninja, and the Firebird Ninja was an amazing wing. I mean, for its time, it had wire risers uh, and a wire a steel bar or aluminium bar, so that you could adjust the angle of attack. So that if you imagine four risers coming off a bar, so if you leant forwards, the angle of attack would go down. Mm. And back it mm. was yeah, yeah. not only that if you rotated your body, you could actually make the glider rotate on its your axis more. So you could fly the whole glider with your body.. Whoa, whoa. Um, and so we uh, we had that. we thought that was fantastic. And we, we were winning. We, Robbie became world champion in it, and we were doing well and we had to design them for, for everyone to fly because everyone was wanting them. And uh, one of our sort of theories we had was it was a theory. Because when you're thermally, and you're, you've got your good cadence, and you're banked, a good angle of bank, and you're keeping the wing back, and, and keeping it cadence perfect, you are losing height. But you're standing in a core that is going up. So it's a trade-off. And we said, theoretically, well, hang on a second. If you do a flat spin, like a helicopter, helico, right, and you stay <laughs> in the core doing a flat spin, you would go up faster. Because obviously, that's faster than a tight 360, which is what you do in a core. So he said, yeah, that's right. So we set off from the overstore door and uh, set off and uh, we, were, we were thermaling around. And I said, yeah, I'm going to try that. And I've got my, my steel bar and my wires and I sort of flat spun it. So I started spinning. But the trouble is, obviously, with the thermal, it's pushing you out as you're spinning. That's what all the carving is about. So I spun and spun and then my risers got jammed like a adolescent couple kissing with braces on their teeth they got stuck and i was now jammed with the glider spinning out of control i thought well this is it so i had to think i've got to throw my reserve but um i don't know i'll give it a just wait a second i'll see if i can get it out so i managed to get it out and flew off and i said to robbie rob do you remember that thing of spinning don't do it don't do it he's like okay cool but luckily for me i didn't throw my reserve Because the reserve that we put in the harness was wrong. Because Robbie and I were going to a competition. We had to have parachutes. So we got a normal harness and we attached the parachute to the back. We stitched it to the back. And we thought, well, where are we going to put the the bridles? And we thought, they can't go over the top. I know what we'll do. We'll just stitch a bit of webbing around the back of the harness here and just clip the bridle for that. That's all we have to do. And then we've got a reserve and it's on the back. And can we reach it? We thought, yeah, we can reach it. So it's <laughs> like, so, yeah, that works. What happened was that day I didn't throw my reserve. All good, fine. Robbie phones me a few days later. He says, talking, whatever you do, don't throw your reserve. It's like, why, what's the matter? Because if you throw your reserve, you go upside down because it's attached to yeah. your and you flip
0: upside down. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, good point. <laughs> so I was lucky. <laughs> <laughs> you never, you, never you, you monkeys didn't think about that at the time, did you?
1: We didn't think much in those days.
0: I'm sorry, you've just dispelled a mystery to me. I also, obviously, the great jockey Sanderson, everybody sees him as a really prudent, really safe guy, doing things only in the. Now you're telling us a different story with Robbie there.
1: Um, <laughs> I was young. Unfortunately, I've
0: got to play. Uh,
1: yeah.
0: Absolutely great story. What were you guys thinking when you were just thinking about just negativing your glider on the spot? Like, okay, what we can do is we just spin the one side and stay in the thermal. That's got to be a bad idea. I'm sure you were sweating like a weight watcher in a candy shop, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Shitting yourself like a pedophile in Legoland, something like that. So, uh, Let's move on a little bit. You've seen some pretty mad things in all the SIVs that you've been getting. I mean, you were mentioning guys flying out to sea a few minutes ago. Tell us about this. In a minute.
1: All our pilots are wonderful, and um, some more wonderful than others. You, you'll know Oludenes, and Oludenes is, is a, a seaside, so it's on the sea level just above, and Babadag is 6,000 feet high, so you glide out. And it's a long glide. It's a 10-minute, 15-minute glide out just to get into the maneuvering box. And we have a situation where... Imagine you come over the manoeuvring box and we're talking to someone already in it or just finishing. Then we ask the pilots just to hold in that area until we finish and then then we start. So they don't lose much height. They just hold a little bit and then they finish. We can see them coming because we we have a radio system. Uh, But we do tell them, whatever you do, if you don't hear anything on the radio, don't keep flying out to sea. Just stay above the box. And if you can't hear the radio, whatever you do, land on the beach. But, um, yeah, we've had a, a couple of pilots that just keep going out to sea, thinking, well, he's got to talk to me a minute. He's going to talk to me a minute. And by the time they realize, they turn around and they can't make it back. So that's the thing we're trying to avoid. Once we had this guy that it, they weren't doing SIV, they were just free flying, and he, the, he flew out. And luckily, um, we noticed him, and we were still in the boat. So we, we managed to, to get him out of the water, and he landed perfectly safely, and it was all very fun, but, you know, it's one of those things where you think, at what point does the pilot say, hmm, maybe I should just think for myself.
0: (laughs) You know what, Jackie, I want to say something on that point. Very often, these pilots are so in their zone that they are just expecting to hear it from the radio, and they stop thinking for themselves, right? Yeah,
1: there's a lot of that. But you, you always try and understand what the thought process was, you know. It wasn't him just relying on on uh, radio comms, you know. He, he thought that he could genuinely glide back. For example, so it's about knowing your kit, knowing your glide,
0: things like that. But uh, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, no, uh, I have to interrupt you. No, no I mean, I, I disagree with you there. I think people, some people go into a zone, they become so comfortable with their instructor that the instructor is going to do everything for them.
1: Yeah, and, and they're so comfortable with their kit. I remember a brilliant one. I was guiding a guy and uh, they so focus on their instruments, they're not looking at what they're doing. We were coming down and it was getting quite breezy in the valley. So I was saying to him, okay, we're going to do, downwind now. We're clearly going downwind because we're going quite fast. And we, we, we do a downwind leg and I say, we're going to land in this field, it's to your right, you can see it and you're going to turn right and right again, base leg, finals and land. When you land, you're going to be vertical because it's quite quite a breeze. So be aware and make sure you've got enough space for being dragged. He's like, yeah, yeah. He came over the field and I was like, okay, turn, turn. You need to turn into wind, turn into wind. And he, he didn't turn into wind. And, he landed downwind and obviously, cloud of dust, hooning downwind because he was going down. Luckily he just carried on flying it and just dissipated the energy. And eventually the glider came to a hole in a plowed field of, of rubble. And he was fine, just, just teeth full of dust and face. And I was, I mean, I knew it was okay, so it was fine, but I was in hysterics, like what? Why did you turn into wind? And he said, because my instruments were telling me I was into wind. And I said, did you not just look? He said, no, no, my instruments were... I was like, really? <laughs> His glider turns into wind automatically.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, I, I've i been affiliated to several aerogliding schools in Austria where I do tandem flights with them. Just when it was winter in South Africa, I had to get out of here. Cape Town's not that sexy in winter. I mean, some of the student stuff you see, you really feel like walking over to the person, holding their hand and saying, please go and play chess. Paragliding uh, is really not for you. We have,
1: uh, we have a system with instructing. If it's instructor has a problem we always say it's not the student it's it's you the instructor you're obviously in a bad mood you've got a character clash you know it's not the student's fault it's your fault when an instructor gets to that stage he has to or she has to say forgive me but you know just gonna pass you on to another instructor just so that you and if he gets through three instructors then the advice would be to the to the student to choose chess
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's sometimes beyond me how people can think like it's just like what were you thinking dude you know or that <laughs> it's, it's too much a, a few minutes ago you were talking about guys flying out to sea and leaving the box and just carrying on carrying on how many how many water landings do you think you've seen that were unplanned
1: what water landings are planned so they want to throw a reserve or they want to test something. Quite often, they stall a cravat out, they get the problem out, which is really important for them to finish saying, yeah, I, I was in control of that. But then they're too low to get back to the, to the land. So we'd say, okay, you might as well throw a reserve or land in the water, trying to get to the thing. But ones where you have to throw a reserve because there's a problem, they can't get it out, they starting to get too low, or that their Gs are increasing too much, they might black out. So we have to throw a reserve before that happens. That is quite rare and luckily because of uh, pilots training and pilot design that happens less and less now plus all our courses evolve more to suit pilot ability as well like in the early days we designed SIV around testing because we tested gliders and I thought pilots would benefit from this these tests from learning how to do these tests they learn about glider control about stability. So that's how SIV started. But it's important that um, as pilots evolve, training evolves, gliders evolve, the SIV instructors also evolve their coaching and training to suit that. Uh, And so by doing that, we we get less and less people in the water because we're more prevention than a cure. But um, yeah, not very often, you know, in a course of, of 10, Probably most be dry, but <laughs> I don't know what our percentage is, 1%? I can't remember.
0: <laughs> While you're telling that story, I'm just thinking to myself, why didn't I try Jockey Sanderson's advice from the video that I once saw? Actually, glider uh, technology is advancing faster what, than what people are learning. What, what's your comment on that?
1: I agree. I think um, with two-line theory, with aspect ratios with sharp nose, things like that. They're still sort of, they're not embracing it as much, but uh, I think people are following it. I think good pilots and instructors can see subtle difference in handling, uh, harness designs, things like that. And they're adapting. You'll see a lot more two-liners or semi-two-liners coming into sea gliders soon. Harnesses, you more, more supine pod harnesses, because they are more comfortable. They're efficient, they're nice. It's just getting used to the vices of them. understanding that if you have a problem you sit up making sure you get your body between the risers and control it, the wing and your pitch and roll before you get the glider back on course. So uh, yeah people are starting to get a good understanding but it is is a a case of you always have to evolve, always. All our courses every year are are never the same, they're all slightly different because you're just picking up things even from other instructors, from other techniques, and it's great that instructors can share as well. You know, we'd say, oh, have you tried this? This has worked. You know, stalling, um, spinning into cravats, things like that. You know, you think, oh, yeah, does that work? Yeah, try it. You, and, it and then you think, oh, I can, I can introduce that. But there is a certain need to know. You need to know the basics, and then there's nice to know. So when the pilot has learned all the need to knows, then you go on to the nice to knows. So it's a different style of training and coaching
0: absolutely fascinating listening to you um, I look at all of this and I, I just what sparked my interest was was this need to share and I think we're going into a new kind of age and maybe the concept of this very podcast which I'm just doing for fun and there's absolutely no commercial interest it's to share it's to go out there and share knowledge and I think that in all industries in all aspects of life if a whole lot more people went to this kind of mentality where Look at the tandem industry that I've been involved. Um, if all of us were much more open with one another across the world, wouldn't that be bringing such a, so much more? Yeah?
1: yeah, definitely. I mean, our sport does do that. We do share. And the great thing is, you know, we are approachable. At every level we're approachable. So, and I think that's great. And, and pilots should. The trouble, the biggest tragedy is fallout of post-school pilots. That's the problem. When they feel they're on their own. And that's where the club... Uh, should have and you know we have club coaches and things like that and coaching sessions in our country it should be that that 10 hour post the school is a critical time where the pilot thinks actually this is rubbish and they've got to be kept in and encouraged to stay not if they don't want to obviously it's that sort of coaching inclusivity is absolutely key because you feel alone i mean i i get it you know you get on a hill you go up, you see some pilots, they're all chatting, telling each other jokes, and, you know, and it's a typical male thing where you think, oh, I don't want to talk to them. You know, I'll do my own thing. And, and then you, you make a mistake you feel embarrassed, and then you pack up the car and you go away. Whereas, in fact, if you just talk to them, they'll tell you about the valley wind changing or whatever. And it's about that inclusivity. And if you feel that guy's feeling a bit self-conscious, you make the effort. Go over there, talk to them, and say, hi, welcome. And, you know, Have you seen this site before? Be careful of this, that, and the other. You know, and that is important with flying in any aspect. So I always try and make a point, you know, if you're on a hill, if you see someone, go and say hi. Even if it's just to say hi.
0: <laughs> You've made two exceptionally good points there for me. Uh, f- firstly, let's talk about the club uh, versus the, the paragliding school. And um, There's there's that real sour taste that stays in a lot of people's mouth. The fact that they feel some kind of animosity towards uh, their instructor or the school that they're trained with just simply because that's try to keep them for commercial reasons close yeah, to them yeah, not right. taught them everything they should do on the first course try and get them immediately to buy their equipment or buy their equipment through their course all this kind of crap you know yeah, the, yeah. the 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 the, the of loss of that person if that person transitions from the paragliding school to the club for example where, where the club it's like a an open source kind of thing no shit now we're exposing people to something another brand could buy something else they won't, they won't come back and buy from me you know meanwhile they're doing the complete opposite uh, of what should be done right so that's one thing you've just said and the second thing is going on the mountain and saying hi to people it's very strange for a lot of people jockey um, you know for years and years I look into the psychology of our sport and and the people and so I have stood next to somebody in Germany uh, sorry in Kirsten in Austria on the takeoff site, and we're watching the very first two guys who are just scratching, really, really scratching close to the trees and up and down in, the, in a bowl. And I'm talking to a complete stranger for a minute about, like, we're very superficially talking about, real small talk about the weather and stuff like that. And the next thing, one of the guys crashes into a tree, like flies evidently into a t- tree, and you hear the, you know, the branches. I, I look down, I'm stunned for a moment, kind of studying what's going on, and I turn to my right to the guy that i was chatting to a minute ago just to say i think that someone's fallen in the tree and as i said through its words and i looked my thought, that guy's already walked away he's walked away ignoring the situation that's how people can be you know instead of everybody running down there and we're a, we're a group of brothers we're a group of friends <laughs>
1: that's
0: terrible that's <laughs> yeah, terrible
1: i remember cursing uh, we did the, the World Championships, the 1989 World Championship. It was the first major worlds, really. Countries coming together, FAI worlds. Oh, we, all, we were all learning. We were all learning. We, <laughs> <laughs> I remember the terrifying, a front rolled in and we were all, all taking off. And it was like, well, you, I got to get off quick before this comes in. and Oh my God, the, <laughs> the carnage that ensued was just people being sucked into cloud as this storm rolled in. Sebastian Bourquin coming back as if he'd seen a ghost and oh people oh it's just it was just awful. We learned so much, so much at that competition. It was uh,
0: incredible. And we we're doing it more time. <laughs> no, I mean I can picture the scene. You know, a whole lot of LUMO, a whole lot of people who are like, how do you call it? Uh, personality types that are walking around, like showing off. You
1: know. But it was, it was the first time. I, I was a bit nervous. I'd never flown in the Alps before, apart from a training session. And yeah, it was an amazing, amazing thing to see the the kais out there and all the magnificent mountains. Was just uh, awe inspiring. And then we had it clueless. We used to use ballast, we used to use lead ballast, not water, because it used to slide it under the seat. And it was easy because we had seat plates, we slid them under, so we had this fantastic 15 or 10 kilogram slabs of lead that we slid underneath. I remember once, it was light conditions, and so I remember saying to my friend, my teammate, Mike Millwood, I said, oh, it's light conditions, maybe we should just take our lead out and just fly light conditions. They say, yeah, true. Yeah, let's take a look. So I said, yeah, I'm going to, yeah, okay. So I took mine out and, and hid it in a bush uh, for, for tomorrow. I'll come back and get it tomorrow. And it's just at a takeoff. And I, I saw him, he was putting it in the back of his harness. And I said, uh, I thought <laughs> I was fly, fly without it. He said, yeah, I am. I'm not flying with it. I'm just putting in my backpack. <laughs> <laughs> <It's> just... <laughs> the things we don't understand.
0: Sensational. (laughs) Great. Just before we started the podcast, you were on a bit of a spot because you were like, you know, when you ask to think of something that you can't think of it. And I was saying, think of some funny stories. You were like, no, but you've come out. You've come out with a couple of crackers in the middle of the podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, next time we have a drink together, we'll come up with some more.
0: Definitely. I'm waiting for you in South Africa. You and Josh are definitely coming to Cape Town. We're going to make a sensational competition next December. You guys are absolutely warmly invited here, really. Yeah,
1: maybe we'll do that. Yes
0: definitely we can also talk about doing some tours it's all about sharing it's about getting out there it's there's so many possibilities why wouldn't you one once come and do an siv course in south africa and whoever wants to come can come visit south africa at the same time you know
1: imagine doing over the sea in south africa looking at the sharks that'd be a motivator to get
0: out yeah when we paramotor from the beach we see all sorts of things whales and sharks and yeah great uh, you're involved in with Ozone. You've been part of Ozone. What, what, what's your involvement? What does that entail? Do you have other brands that you are representing at the same time in your school? Do you sell something else? Just a little bit about yeah, we have uh, a Ozone and-
1: Gliders and equipment. We have a, a selection. Um, but I, I'm sponsored by Ozone. Uh, Ozone of friends. Mike Cavanagh is a dear friend of mine, and, and obviously all the team at Ozone are great friends. So it's it's a no-brainer that, I, and it's a brilliant brand. So. I'm honoured and, and uh, pleasure to be with Ozone. Uh, and I think they've got the right philosophy as well. They've got the right sharing philosophy. Although I don't know many manufacturers that don't, Ozone certainly have have that mentality and the pilots the same. And so it's the same as our guides. It's the same you know, with uh, test pilots. They're following the same philosophy. Therefore, those sort of people attract those sort of people and therefore it radiates that inclusivity and that fun and that inspiration the design I mean David and Luke and Russ and all the team the design is inspirational and they're always looking forward always looking forward so it's, it's fantastic being part of that I mean I don't do any development uh, I just get to fly their wonderful wings but uh, it's great fun and it's a great family
0: I thought, wow, well, if it would at all be possible, I would like to make a podcast with Russ Ogden. What an unpretentious guy. I mean, I have hardly ever chatted to people who are so esteemed in the paragliding world who are so down to earth and normal. Wonderful, you know?
1: Yeah, he's a g- gorgeous character. And it was so nice, I mean, the British we have a policy where all pilots have to be approachable by anyone. So even if you're getting ready to do a, a task, if someone comes and asks a question, you answer it and you... You don't tell anyone to go away or, you know, fuck off, I'm busy. You can't do that because we're lucky to be where we are and you have to share. But Russ goes a stage further. I mean, I remember being at the World Championship this year and a pilot came up to him and said, my glider is, is collapsing and it doesn't feel right. Can you help me? And he, you know, was expecting a checking of lines and things like that, which Russ did. And so just before the task, he said, I'll fly it. So he flew, took off, flew around before the window was open checked it, deflated it, risky manoeuvres, which he takes in his stride. checks it, decides what is wrong with it, comes in, top lands and sorts it out. And he says, there you go, solved. And then he walks away, gets clipped into his glide and takes off and does a task. And that is the way he is. And that's, that is the, his way, that's the ozone way. And it's, it's the way we should all be.
0: Couldn't agree with you enough on that. Absolutely generous thing for somebody to do. I mean you know, to, to sabotage your own task and to take away possibly... I mean, okay, granted, him and Henri on, on can take off and fly ad nauseum through the day, but it's still just before a task. You can have your zen, you can have your moment, and here you are testing a complete stranger's glider just to be generous. That's really something, yeah? Yeah. 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 It's great.
1: Yeah.
0: It is great. Well, I didn't know that that ozone's thinking or ethos or a kind of motto they stand for, and it's refreshing to me to hear that few days ago uh chatted to a friend in switzerland and he said oh you know in my paragliding school i sell the smaller makes uh, i want to give everyone a chance so he is like uh, bgd super and and skywalk but at the end of the day just keep it real
1: and you hope that you provide a good enough service where people say you know i'd like to get it from you or through you because you've taught them because there is that but if they choose not to then that's their choice generally you know it's that
0: choice and Everyone's free to do what they want. Very interesting discussion. We've landed on a couple of points. I, I like those points very much earlier about the schools and the clubs and about simply going over and being a person who arrives on the mountain. You don't have to arrive on the mountain and take your hat off and swing it around like you're the a, a Lone Ranger. You can also just be a little bit normal and arrive with a yeah, smile and a happiness. You know? so.
1: There's so many examples of... I mean, again, I, I'll give you an else, example of Russ and Honorat. The whole team, really. The, the Luke, they, they often testing on, on Gordon in South of France. And, you know, when you see test pilots testing these prototypes, you think, oh my God, that's Formula One, you know, uh, you're not approachable. And yet if they see someone having a bit of a ding-dong on launch, they'll go over and say, hey, mate, do you want a hand? That's what it's all about. That's what you should be doing rather than looking and saying, oh, God, what an idiot, you know, or seeing someone crashing in the street and walking away. You, you go over there, you know, you prevent them from going into the street first. But, you know, it's about that. And, and that's the, you know, tandem businesses, people often see them and think, oh, look at them, They haven't got the time to talk. But if a tandem pilot just turns around you know, and they're in a lift, they're going up and they're here, you know, it's about, hey, mate, you know, I wouldn't do that. This is the best way to get up or you know, that advice. You know, we're all working, we're all busy, but spare a little bit of time to share. That's, that's what it's about.
0: I would call it anti-elitist. It's such a normal sport. We're a brotherhood that are looking for one another. We're looking... I've got your back on this. If if yeah. we go flying together, like Felix Rodriguez was telling me, I have to go with my buddies. I've, he's got his Venezuelan and his uh, Spanish friends, and they're a clique. They're always together, you know. Yeah. And there's some sausages and there's some like one of the top tips Felix told me is always go flying with friends. Arrive, approach uh, in Cape Town. Unfortunately now there are 15 tandem businesses. I started the original one, Jockey, and it's it becomes ugly. You know, everyone doing the same thing at kind of the same price and the first thing any solo pilot that uh, he arrives at is a aggressive nature of somebody saying, "Have you signed your license? Have you done? Have you? Who are you here with? Who do, what a shit attitude! You know?
1: Yeah, you, you can't have that attitude. I mean, is has some pilots like that and things like that. You know, it makes it ugly. It makes you feel feel sort of not welcome, and it sets you off on a bad foot. You know. It, and you want to set off with positive attitude, ha- you know, welcome, this is a great place to launch from. And, and Felix is absolutely right. I mean, I, I always have, you know, you always have a part of friends that keep you feeling good, feeling happy and enjoying it. And the minute you, you, you're not enjoying it because people around you are not very nice, then just walk away. You know, if you get the ground-suck people that tell you, oh, I will not go up there, it's a bit too rough, or you shouldn't be taken off, then, you know, be polite, walk away from them. And, and do your own thing. But it's about that positivity and it goes through you into the flux. So it's, a, it's really important to keep that. And, and Felix is a very emotional, spiritual guy. So he will always, always surround himself with nice, cool people. <laughs>
0: Uh, Felix is so crazy he's so mad uh, you got to love Felix he yeah. cries crocodile tears every time I get, play a game of chess with him he, he, he hates losing I have to tell you <laughs> a lot of people seem to have said oh Jockey Sanderson ah he lived in early in and you, and you said to me you know what so many people think that. so let's just clear that up you live in Keswick yeah. yep. you do tours in Australia and in other places in the world Uh, Tell us
1: so we we follow the Sun basically so our whole season January would start in Colombia and then we would return home We would then go to Australia in March and then we'd come to Oludenez in April And then we come back to the UK uh, In May and June we go to France summer we stay in the UK and then at the end of the season We would do well. We do Macedonia towards the end of the season and then we do a uh, back in Turkey and then India in October and then December. You never know, South Africa. Um, and then we start the season again. It's a completely migratory thing. Brazil, we're doing, we're doing now in December. So we go to the best places for that time of year. And we don't want to do tours where it's raining because clients are miserable. Everyone's miserable. The worst is that. So, you, you select the best time and you say, right, that's the best time, that's when we go. So, we've, over the sort of 20, 30 years we've been doing it, it's evolved this migratory course thing. So, yeah, I live in Keswick and we have a policy that I try and stay here two weeks, abroad two weeks at worst. But I now, do you know what? Since the lockdown, I prefer just staying at home. <laughs> so, I'll be doing less tours now uh, myself. The guides will keep going josh will do stuff but i'll do less and i enjoy the uk and i want to make the most out of it so yeah i'll be doing less. great uh, i don't think i'll go back to a full-time touring anymore i'll spend more time at home friends and family
0: you know before the podcast started you said i asked you what else do you do in your spare time your first answer was i can't say i work when we do what we love we don't work and secondly you were saying oh I do like to tinker with things. I like building things with my hands outdoors, making things. You're part of the voluntary mountain rescue. Uh, tell us more about that, Jockey.
1: Um, Yeah, we, we have a, because there are mountains here, so we have a mountain rescue teams, but they're not professional. They're all voluntary. So if anyone gets into trouble, we, they call 999. They'll scramble the mountain rescue team of that area. And so I'm in the Keswick mountain rescue team, which is, and so any mountains, rivers, lakes, Anyone gets into trouble, then uh, we get scrambled and go and either pick them off a cliff or carry them down a mountain or or whatever it needs doing, really. And so part of our remit is not just crag rescue and mountain rescue, we do river rescues. So we learn about swift water rescue techniques, things like that, which is great. Because I used to paddle as a child, we used to do a lot of competition slalom, white water paddling. I love the white water. So we now teach swift water rescue techniques to other mountain rescue. Personnel, so we do that as well. Different. I like contrast. I like change. I like to have you know come from two weeks, three weeks of paragliding to then not even think about paragliding for two weeks and do something completely different. So uh, and that's that's I suppose why I've stayed in the sport so long because I'm not always doing the same thing. But yeah, I do lots of different things and I love it. Yeah, going out bike.
0: Uh, Do you ride an e-bike or do you ride a traditional bike?
1: Catherine and I have uh, road bikes. At the moment, because we just go from our house. So we set off, we go around a lake and do a figure of eight or whatever. And it's lovely. We, we can go out, get beautiful scenery. Seven in the evening and the sun is still high and blissful. Absolutely blissful. We, I don't do mountain bike. I'm too scared of going down the hill. <laughs> I'm going over the handlebars. And we've been to too many uh, incidents like that. So, yeah, the mountain bike scares me. I do motorbikes. So I love that. I've got a, a Triumph Daytona. So that's great fun. <laughs> Not as mad as Robbie, but uh, I'm like, an- no. I, well, I did a, a, a circuit, you know, getting my knee down and going around the bends and it's a real good mind game. You know, you're telling your chimp, it's okay. You, the bike is okay. Just get over. And your chimp's saying, Jesus, you must be crazy. But you know, you see people passing you you think, well, he's doing it. And it, it's fantastic. And to get that, Empathy, again, it gives you an understanding what pilots are going through as well. So, you know, imagine me being, there's me terrified on a motorbike of getting over. I then understand a pilot that I'm teaching terrified of stalling because you understand what they're going through. And I think it's important for instructors and guides to get that understanding of what other people are thinking. Because if you lose that understanding, you just simply say, well, it's easy. Just do that. Why, Why can't you do it? And you've lost it. Whereas if you think, well, I know what it's like to not get my knee down, to be scared. And if that guy passed me on a motorbike, I said, why can't you just get your knee down? So it's about having that understanding. We often do stuff with with the guides totally out of their comfort zone. So going down a rafting river, you want them to be scared. You want them to be out of their bubble so that you can then say, that's what it feels like to be a student. Understand it and talk to them like that, not like you should know. (laughs) I left my glider outside and the sheep are in the field they they often nibble it
0: (laughs) but it's okay we can carry on (laughs) we can always stop for a moment while you go and chase the sheep or visit the sheep I don't know (laughs) I don't know how much time you spent in Australia (laughs) (laughs) Uh, how does an Australian find sheep in long grass? don't know how very satisfying (laughs) Absolutely br- brilliant chatting. Brilliant getting to know you. Such a pleasure. I've always seen you as this extremely smiling, amicable type, and to actually want to meet you on such a podcast, and of course we're videoing this, so it makes it so uh, so wonderful to to hear some of your insights here. One of the podcasts I'm going to be doing is on on why we ride, on motorcycle riding. You know, you speak of your your Triumph Daytona. I have eight motorcycles. I'm a junkie for buying bikes. I just couldn't help myself. But off-road bikes, on-road bikes, all sorts of bikes. Uh, I have a Triumph 1050. I have a GS800. I have a Ninja okay. 250. I have all sorts of kind of bikes why do you ride a motorcycle? Why does Robbie Whittle ride a motorcycle? How much is speed necessary for you and me, for adrenaline? For We all see tandem pilots coming to the mountain on a scooter and riding very cautiously. We're all different. Why do you ride a bike? Let me put that question to you.
1: Um, it's to learn a new skill and it's to be stimulated with You always got to have stimulation if you stop learning. Uh, And motorcycling, I was always, I always used to ride scooters. Uh, In fact, we've got a Vespa over here. But uh, yeah, I used to ride those and I was always terrified of speed. And then um, I I did a knee down course, you know, circuit knee downs and stuff. And I loved it. You know, you're learning. I loved it. The the, the whole way about negative steering and the gyroscopic effects and, and it's so exciting that, that yeah, I got into, um, got into bikes again and it just reignited. And, and the Daytona is a beautiful bike to ride. You just can't help it. You go, uh, I was delivering, we, we, ha- we make these masks, uh, these face masks. I was delivering some the other day to people and I thought, you know what? I can go on my bike because I'm delivering. Them. So I went on the bike and it's absolutely fantastic. Absolutely brilliant. <coughs> to be scared again is fantastic. <laughs> You know, you get addicted to that pushing, pushing, pushing. And I think, you know, when you start not getting scared, then you're in danger because you start to lose respect and lose an understanding. And so you have to always push yourself to get a little bit of fear so that you're stimulated. As soon as you get too complacent, that's when you're going to have an accident. Russ is the same. You know, Russ will do, he says, I don't do normal flying now. I either test or compete because I'm not stimulated. if you're not stimulated, then you're potentially going to drop your guard and be." be at risk so with biking the, the great thing of it's like paragon. when you go paragliding, you don't think about anything else apart from flying nothing your your problems at home whatever you're having at work doesn't come into it because you're flying that's all you think about same in motorbikes the minute you're on that bike there's only one thing and that's the road that is in your mind and it's brilliantly liberating
0: wow again a whole bunch of gems that you've come out with there and uh, and so many truths so many things that make me think firstly i mean i've also done some track days and uh, riding my bike on the track and in south africa for example if you came here we would, could go to the track oh, we could rent that? the whole track for, for an affordable price it's like you you won't even believe it's cheapest chips all right so you can take the racetrack you can go and isn't riding a motorcycle on the racetrack one of the most orgasmic things that we can do out of the bedroom
1: for sure and you, we do sort of circuits and after, uh, I think, we, what do we race for? You race 10, 20 minutes and you're exhausted. When that checkered flag comes out, you are thinking, oh, thank the Lord, I can finish now. You know, that whole band of fear, adrenaline, it is just exhausting and you, you, you come in sweating and you think, yes, it's just exciting and that's what, you know, flying should be. It should be relaxing sometimes, stimulating others. You know, you want to, Sometimes you want to go for an evening flight and relax. And other times you want to push yourself really hard. But you've got to know you know, what you're doing and when. Uh, but with motorcycling, it's permanently. For me, I'm still at that learning phase where I'm just, you know, I just—I know I make mistakes. So it's that. But Robbie, I mean, I can't wait. Next time he comes to the Isle of Man, I'll go and see him and, and watch him. And just to see that magic of that mastery. I mean, he mastered paragliders and hang gliders. And, and kites and sup boards and anything he does, he masters. And with the bikes, he's done exactly the same. So, yeah,
0: can't wait. Look, we can't all be good at everything. But some guys are much better at most things than the rest, you know. And Robbie is definitely one of those guys.
1: Yeah, he's definitely got that magic and that approach. You know, He just doesn't doubt. But he's also very humble, which is great.
0: Yeah, he's completely humble. You're right there. He's, he's, he's on the extreme of being completely normal. Meanwhile, I mean, he creamed the world of, of hang gliding. He smashed paragliding. Yeah. Uh, and now when, when Russell Ogden was telling me that, you know, he's riding the Isle of Man TT, I said, what the fuck? What? <laughs> yeah. And it's true. You know. Robbie, I, I remember we were testing in Switzerland once. We had to get this
1: glider finished. It was winter. It was rainy. The cloud base was really low. We had to do just one more flight. That's all we had to do. And the two of us were on this takeoff with this one little old guy. And it was just the three of us. And he, he was Swiss. So he didn't talk much English. It's just the three of us sat there waiting for the cloud base to lift. It wasn't lifting. In fact, it was probably going down. And so we thought, you know what, it's time to go. Uh, we had cardinal compass. So we had, you know, big oil compass. And we were happy with the, the we could evaluate it and the risk. And uh, we thought, you know what, well, let's just go just through the little cloud, and then we'll, we'll get to the manoeuvring area. As we keep that heading, we're fine. I mean, so we thought, well, let's get ready. We started to get ready, and, and Robbie turned to the old boy and, and said, you know, are you, are you going to go down in the cable car? What, what? He said, no, I, I'll fly. And he said, have you got a compass? He said, no, I don't have a compass. And I, he's like, well, it's quite dangerous. You know, it's very dangerous because the, the cloud is on the mountain. And, you know, we're, we're taking a calculator. Which this guy shouldn't do it. So Robbie said, i tell you what, you have my compass. And uh, you fly, fly on this heading. You'll be safe. Just keep on that heading. You'll come out of the cloud. And it was probably just follow the heading. if I said to Robbie, Robbie, what are you going to use? He said, it's okay. He said, I'll follow you. <laughs> I said, okay. So we sent the old guy off. He set off. Great. Uh, and he went. Our driver down at the bottom said, yeah, this guy's just popped out. He's fine. So, okay, cool. I said, all right, Robbie, we've got to do this. I mean, how stupid this? We're going to fly in cloud together, and he's going to follow. <laughs> so I so said, let's do a launch together. So we obviously, all launch, he's right behind, he sets off. Good. Obviously, we're in clouds. So I, I follow my bearing. Oh, great. Pop out. Not very long at all. Over the maneuvering area. Great. Look back can't see Robbie anywhere. So I did launch. He did, You know, I saw him running and so I sort of started doing maneuvers and Robbie had gone in. This is a lesson for cloud flying. Gone in, felt a little bit of turbulence, corrected his body, the turbulence, and then saw trees coming towards him. Wah! So he oh. turned 90 degrees away from the tree, thinking, well, that'll, that'll be me away from the trees. He was okay, went back into cloud, saw trees again. I thought, whoa! And turned 90 degrees the same way away, because obviously you're bound to be away. And then he thought, I'm away this time. And then he saw trees again. Thought, this isn't right. I've got to, you know, so he turned again. So he turned 90 degrees again. And what he had done is he had drifted right into a bowl round to the right of the takeoff. And went all the way in a circle, all the way around that bowl, and then out. And he came out miles away. But yeah, he he sort of selflessly gave the old boy his compass and (laughs) risked going into the trees with a prototype. I mean, it would have been all right, but the prototype would have been (laughs) wrecked. Because of that, we didn't finish because he he was too low to do the maneuvers. And that was it, we needed to finish this flight. So we now can't do it. So we had to drive from Switzerland to England. as the only place it was flyable. We had to get it done that weekend. So we drove there, we slept in the car, we woke up, we went to this little hill, we started ground handling. Pilot came up to us on this little hill to tell us off about ground handling. And it's, this is the classic sort of Robbie and he polite, he was a world champion. And he, this pilot was telling him off for not ground handling properly. And Robbie, Robbie and I stood there and we were like, yes, yeah, sorry, sorry, that's wrong. We should, yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right i don't know what you guys are doing but and so neither has said anything and we walked down the hill we finished our testing and uh, we had a stern telling off by this pilot and the pilot never knew who we were or robbie was a world champion
0: <laughs> <laughs> i would have liked to see the face of that pilot when somebody said hey mate uh, what did you tell the world champion? You know?
1: He <laughs> yeah, did. The instructor went up to the, the guy and said, "Oh, do you know who that was? And the guy said, like, no, it's some idiot's at handling. And he said, no, that was the world
0: champion. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. <laughs> yeah, great. Uh, yeah. yeah, it happens like that, you know. It's- I say we all shit the same color, mate. We are all the same. Uh, so many people are, are getting sucked into this terrible disease in the world where we we're made to free, like we have to be better than the next person. Where has this come from?
1: Yeah, better yourself. You don't have to be better than the next person. But mind you, competition I think competition is more about competing with people you respect uh, and and being admired by your peers. That's why you strive to do it. You know, people go into battle, not for their country, but for their fellow uh, soldiers, their fellow company, their friends that they're fighting shoulder to shoulder with. And we compete in the same way. The same philosophy should be there. You know, you you're, you, you want to be better amongst the people you respect. And therefore, you, you get that fantastic feeling of accomplishment because, you know, there you were like gladiators and, and you won. And it's it's not about uh, ego. It's about managing
0: that ego and that desire to to be good yeah, I, I just feel we should all just simply try and limit it at being the best person we can you know yeah. uh, as, as simple or simplistic as that might sound
1: yeah, I agree definitely
0: the best person is the one having the most fun the... with with all of these crazy things that you do and and go for in your life you're of course a very giving person you've gone through. Your whole life giving. You wouldn't be doing SIB courses. Um, you're, of course, extremely passionate about our sport. Just the fact that you've accepted a podcast from a stranger shows that you are part of, of, of spreading the good of the sport of, of humanity. Are there any last messages you'd like to give out to the world? Uh, practice, go out
1: and fly, have fun, make sure you surround yourself with positive people who make you want to do more and learn more. Yeah, just
0: keep learning from this great sport. Yeah, it's such a great sport. I can't, I can't tell you how much I love David gliding. I mean, staying here on the takeoff site in in it's I'm doing my absolute for Such ridiculous stories going. On. We can do, we can walk, we can run, or we can cycle between six and nine in the morning. Yesterday morning, there's this classic video of a, a person doing a protest by standing with his paddle. He's standing on the land on the beach, and he's just swinging his paddle around. And the police are coming over and telling him, "Move on, move on." He's saying no i'm practicing i'm doing my sports i'm practicing yeah but he's being quite sarcastic you know he's not giving mean, but the police don't know what to do like
1: no, it's, in such a hard place they're trying to enforce the law that's really hard or just a rule are you is that lovely pond still behind takeoff you know that little lake by the but in um, that,
0: yes. oh uh, yeah
1: yeah is it still, yeah. Like, so pretty um,
0: uh, here I have an infinity swimming pool, I have uh, a, a bevy of lakes around, there's a waterfall sitting here with 22 waterfalls here in Portable. Yeah, um, really, I mean, if, if you don't know much about our country, uh, you've never been to South Africa, have you? Me? Yeah, loads, uh, five t- five, four or five times, it's
1: a Portable.
0: Okay, and it's really- okay great. You, you used to do tours here, did you?
1: Yeah, we used to do nice simple tours, small groups with uh, regular flyers. And it was really enjoyable,
0: which is why we're thinking of going again. Yeah. So, uh, obviously, the concept of bike and flying, using a motorcycle and flying, is, is a really, really nice one. And uh, our country's fantastic for it. Uh, we have 56,000 uh, kilometers of tarmac road and, and uh, half a million kilometers of dirt road. So, adventure bike riding or even just on-road riding and going to place while a backup vehicle brings on gliders along. So, a combination of this riding and visiting beautiful places in South Africa and flying also unknown places which are decent with a kind of half-hike-and-fly style. Yeah, uh, there's, there's really, really nice things that people can do in our place. And while, and I hate to say it like this, but while Africa is still possible to visit and uh, still a place that we can in our lifetime see, um, I really advise people to grab it and come and travel around Africa.
1: Yeah, yeah, we will come. Look forward to it, sir.
0: Really, really, thank you very much. it's was so cool.
1: A pleasure, absolute
0: pleasure. Stay safe, everyone, and have fun. Thanks again, Junkie. You superstar. Look after yourself, Chip Judge. Bye.
1: Yeah.